Our loving Father, we thank you that we can come and gather around your word and fellowship with each other and ultimately fellowship with you. Uh, by your spirit, give us ears to hear you speak, soften our hearts and lead us in the way of repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I was uh, interested in contacting Malcolm Turnbull uh, during the week. Uh, and so I googled it, you know what that means, don't you? And uh, as up came a website, uh, instantly had Malcolm Turnbull's name, it had the address of his office in Edgecliff, uh, it even had a phone number. The number of his office is 93273988. How about that? You have the Prime Minister's phone number at his office. Are you excited about that? Yeah. I can give it to you again later. Uh, I have to admit, I was a little bit surprised at how accessible he appeared to be. I use the word appeared very carefully. And I even contemplated ringing the number. I thought, well, I wonder what would happen if I rang that number. I got a bit cynical, oh, maybe an answering machine. But what if someone actually answered the phone? What would I say? Imagine if the secretary, a real person, answered it. And I might ask her, hey, uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, what are my chances of sitting down with Malcolm Turnbull at some stage just for a chat? But imagine if she said, oh, one moment and put me through. And imagine if at the other end of the phone, a voice uh, came through the phone and said, hello, it's Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, what would I say next? I know what some of you might say. But I wonder what you would say next. Uh, hello, Prime Minister. I might say it's Adam from Inverell. Uh, I think I'd start with something really nice, like our church family prays for you every Sunday. Uh, or I might, who knows? Uh, Barnaby Joyce was here a few weeks back. Uh, he's, he seems to be so accessible. My mother was so happy to see him. She ran down the lawn and she nearly bowled him over. Uh, she was that enthusiastic. Do you think access to Malcolm Turnbull is easy? Uh, well, how about access to God? And how about being able to stand in his presence? On what basis can we approach our God with confidence? I didn't even dare pick up the phone to our Prime Minister, did I? On what basis can we approach our God with confidence? With petitions, with prayers, or thanksgiving, or anything? Aren't you glad you didn't live in the day of the Old Testament, in the Old Testament times? Uh, what does Hebrews 9 say about that? Well, look at verses 1 to 5 with me, please. This is a commentary on the Old Covenant. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up in its first room with a lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread and this was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. It's the Ten Commandments. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. 
But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. It sure does sound like a lot of detail to me. But they're special items, aren't they? And they're there because they communicate the heart of the Old Covenant, the stone, stone tablets of the law. The cherubim of the glory communicated God's promise to be present. And you have the mercy seat. And all speak of grace and presence and forgiveness of God. But it's hidden, isn't it? It's hidden, and we know it's hidden because it's behind a curtain, for goodness sakes. And that's what a curtain does, doesn't it? A curtain hides things. Uh, it's waiting to be revealed. You go to the theatre, don't you? And the curtains are drawn, and you wait for the big opening, the big show to start. But it doesn't start until the curtains open, and then all is revealed. And here, in the tabernacle, the old covenant temple, here, no one goes behind there except one bloke annually, and that's the priest. And so it speaks of a difficulty, but also a hiddenness. There's a hiddenness there in terms of accessing God. Look, verse 6, we keep reading. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, carry on, but only the high priest entered the most inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the holy place, the most holy place, had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Wow! It's just outward stuff, isn't it? Verse 8 is the key. The Holy Spirit makes it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed. So there's a problem. Meaning that the way we access God and come into his space hasn't been revealed. And so again, the tabernacle shouts loudly that with the curtain and this hidden holy room that it is not an easy thing to approach and come into the presence of this holy God. So what is the answer? We need the curtains drawn, don't we? We need them torn in two. Well, the answer is verse 11. Verse 11, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, how much more will he cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Do you see the answer here? If access to God is a problem, and if the old covenant doesn't cut it, Jesus is the answer. He serves the heavenly tabernacle, not the earthly one that the Israelites used. He offered his own blood and uh, blood unblemished, not the blood of animals. He went through the, the most holy place, the real one, into the very presence of God. He obtained an eternal redemption. And he doesn't have to repeat this sacrifice year after year after year. He achieved inward cleansing for us, inward forgiveness, not just something that's done on the outside. And the curtain, well, we know that very first good, that good Friday, the curtain was torn in two. It's a big clue, isn't it? The way had been opened up, and this is what Jesus has done for us. In Jesus, we have these wonderful things. We have access to God. We have his forgiveness. Uh, these should be the best things ever. Are they not wonderful? Here is why we continue to celebrate the Reformation. Here is why we spent four Sundays doing that. This is what was hidden from the people. The Roman church was and remains stuck in rep replicating the old copy, perpetuating the idea that, that that's an altar on which we somehow re-offer Jesus. That Jesus' physical body is present in the bread and the wine such that it actually magically becomes flesh and his bones and blood in our stomachs. It's the idea that somehow we can offer something up to God like a sacrifice to appease him so all will be well and I'll be right with God. But the liberating truth of the gospel, the great work of the reformers tells us no. We need to read our Bibles. We come to the table not to offer anything up. What could we offer? We come to the table to remember what our God has sent down. He sent down his son, his love, his son, his sacrifice. Once and for all, that is what we remember. Look at verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. We have a promised inheritance. Uh, my father passed. As you know, I got his razor. It's a beautiful old razor. And I used to watch Dad scrape his face of an afternoon after a big day are laying bricks and we talk. But in Jesus, our inheritance is something altogether different and altogether more special than even that. 
We have access to our Heavenly Father, our God. We have forgiveness. We have cleansing. Uh, we have a brilliant eternal future. And it's all because Jesus died as our substitute and now lives as our mediator. Verse 16. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. Wherever there's a will, there's a relative, right? Your last will and testimony has no power until the time of your death. Verse 18, this is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. See, what's the deal with all the blood? Sacrificing an animal was a common way of securing a deal or making a covenant. Why the blood? Because God prescribed it. But why? Verse 21, in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Okay, so the old covenant and the new are alike. Both need blood. Both are like a will giving an inheritance. Both require death for the purpose of sacrifice. Both provide cleansing as a result of shed blood. But we know God's contract is made with the blood of Jesus. See, how can you be sure of forgiveness? It's signed by the blood of Jesus. How can you be sure of cleansing? It's inked by the blood of Jesus. How can you be sure of free access to God? It's guaranteed by the blood of Jesus. How can you be sure of heaven and in the eternal inheritance that awaits? It's marked by the blood of Jesus. It's nothing but the blood. Leviticus 17 says that life is in the blood and the price of sin is the death of one's life. And here... No longer does the worshipper identify with the life of an animal being sacrificed and the animal giving its life as it's poured out and blood is poured over the altar, such as the price of sin. Now it's our saviour Jesus. He is the high priest who is also the sacrifice as his life is poured out for yours, as his life is given for yours and mine. That's why there's blood, because it represents life. And that's why his blood is the blood of the new covenant, because without the blood, there is no forgiveness. So here's a question then. Is Christ's sacrifice to be repeated? Verse 24. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. There was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. 
Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself, just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. See that once for all language? When we have uh, First Order, Holy Communion, uh, this is the language that Thomas Cranmer has put in our Book of Common Prayer. He deliberately includes it. The repetition of the Old Testament sacrifices show their inadequacy and their hiddenness, that there's something bigger to be revealed. Uh, did Queen Mary get that? Here is, again, a key point, a key difference. Uh, as we come to the table, we are not offering a sin offering. We are not replicating uh, some kind of Old Testament ritual. Uh, this building is not a temple. Uh, there is no most holy place here. That rail is not a curtain or a barrier. Uh, the table is not an altar. Uh, we are not re-sacrificing Jesus, just to be clear, like it somehow opens up access to God and his grace. Here is one truth Cranmer literally staked his life on. Uh, he believed that this was a matter of the gospel. That 2,000 years ago, Christ's cross was the altar. That Christ himself was the sacrifice where he made the final sin offering once and for all. Christ alone. That he alone is our mediator. That he alone is our access to God. And so what do we do at the table, Adam? What happens then? Well, 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that we proclaim his death until he comes. As we read the reading from Luke's gospel, we remember Jesus' words as they gathered around the table and had supper at the table. He said, take and eat this in remembrance of me. Remember me. We're to remember the gospel. See, it's a beautiful thing, communion, the Lord's table, because we have keen physical senses. We have sight, we have smell, we have sound, we have touch, we have taste. But our spiritual senses are dim at best. But Christ has commanded that these elements that we'll share in a moment, that they be joined to the proclamation of his promises to save us and sustain us. It's about the gospel. And so in a way, as we come to the table, it's an invitation to encounter Jesus with all our senses. It is an absolutely spiritual event. But it's as spiritual as opening up your Bible and gathering for church and praying and singing and all those other things. With the bread and the wine, the Holy Spirit witnesses to us 
that just as surely as the bread and wine feeds our bodies, the Holy Spirit witnesses that Christ himself nurtures and encourages our souls. See, it's not about keeping in good with God. It's about remembering that Jesus meets our needs. And that is encouraging. The knowledge of Christ's love for us renews our love for him and renews our love for others. And this is the heart of the gospel, isn't it? And so we feed on him, not with our stomachs, but in our hearts by faith. Look at chapter 10, verse 11, please. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is a covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I'll put my laws in their hearts and I'll write them on their minds. That's the prayer book. And then he adds, this, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Do you see it? It's finished. Christ is the ultimate sacrifice in God's eyes, you cannot get a more costly or a more important sacrifice. And for that reason, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is the ultimate one. No other sacrifice is ever needed again. Uh, our only hope is the one true sacrifice of Jesus. By his sacrifice alone are we forgiven, are we made holy, are we acceptable to God? And by that sacrifice alone can we approach our holy, holy, awesome God. And so how do we have access to God? The answer is Christ alone. He is the object of our faith. He is our mediator. He is our go-between. There is no other mediator. The idea that Mother Mary or the saints or other things can mediate for us. There's no biblical warrant for that. And if you have Jesus as your mediator, why would you go elsewhere? Why would you go elsewhere? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. And so we see the answer is always Jesus. It's always Jesus. It's always Jesus. How do we respond? Let me close by reading to you from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weakness. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Amen.